Welcome to the Elijah Streams podcast. Our mission is to encourage you in your faith through a unique blend of patriotism and prophecy. And now here's your host, Steve Schultz. Hey, happy Wednesday. It's October 4. A lot of people have been talking about this day. You're watching this on the 4th. We are recording this See behind me at 3.05 p.m. the day before. It's the 3rd. Uh, minutes ago, we got word that uh, Kevin McCarthy has been voted out of the House. Uh, we're going to bring Roger Stone in here. We are scheduled to talk about uh, who killed the man who killed Kennedy. It's the book that Roger Stone wrote, The Case Against LBJ. But before we do that, we're going to ask him, uh, Roger, right away uh, what his thoughts are on Kevin McCarthy and what's next. So with that in mind, here's our episode of Prophets and Patriots. Here we go with Roger Stone. Roger, the news is dizzying right now, isn't it? Uh, this is really an extraordinarily uh, historic day. There were motions to remove a speaker back in uh, nineteen the 1910s, uh, wow. also this other time in the 1920s. The last time it has actually happened, which is only once, was in the 1860s. Uh, it is a tumultuous time, uh, but I think it speaks to the character of the new Republican Party, uh, and it is very definitely uh, a a uh, a hit uh, on the uniparty, on the two-party duopoly uh, that is busy spending us uh, into oblivion. Uh, at the same time, they're shipping billions of dollars to Ukraine. So this was unforeseeable, uh, but perhaps the stage was set from the beginning uh, when. Kevin McCarthy only became speaker uh, after the 15th ballot uh, and several days of balloting um, when he agreed to certain uh, reforms of the House rules uh, that allowed this to happen today. In other words, that allowed any member to uh, move to vacate the chair, which is to say remove the speaker as a non-privileged motion uh, that could not uh, be tabled. Now, there was uh, a test vote on tabling it. Once you saw that the vote to table the motion failed, uh, it was very clear that the handwriting is on the wall. Uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, proves uh, that you that your word matters, that your commitments matter, uh, and uh, power for power's sake did not work out well for him. Well, now, you know, we were just starting to talk and it was time for us to get going, but uh, I would like to know then, there's probably a lot of different options, but what are your thoughts about, okay, we now know Kevin McCarthy's gone, what next? So I guess it's a question of who's next and what are they going to do uh, once that person's in? Are they gonna, is everything going to change again? Well, it's a very complicated question. Uh, to elect a new speaker, you need 218 votes. Uh, no Republican wants to have to go deal with the Democrats in some kind of power sharing arrangement that would essentially uh, completely negate the results of the last election. It's going to be extraordinarily different, uh, difficult for the caucus to come up with a person on whom everyone can agree. The dirty little truth is you don't even today within the Republican caucus have a consensus for the impeachment of Joe Biden, despite the overwhelming evidence of extortion uh, bribery, uh, money laundering, uh, racketeering, illegal lobbying, uh, uh, influence peddling, multi-million dollar payments 
directly to members of the Biden family from Russia, from China, from Ukraine, from Romania and elsewhere. Uh, when the Democrats say there's no evidence, folks, the evidence is not only overwhelming, but mounting. That said, if you turned out the lights and took a vote, I'm not sure that you have a, a consensus for the impeachment of Joe Biden yet. Wow. Uh, you know, the That's... problem, as I often say on the Reawaken America tour, is our problem today are not the gutless, uh, or I should say the leftist, socialist, Marxist, progressive Democrats. Uh, our problem are the feckless, gutless, weak need spineless, uh, white wine swilling country <laughs> establishment Republicans who just don't have the will to fight. That is the number one problem today. Man, man, oh man, oh man. Well, I can put you down for undecided where you stand on this stuff. That's amazing. So, I mean, they have to have a speaker, an acting speaker, right? Or does everything stop until? Well, I think they, they can put somebody to preside in the chair. Okay. Uh, look, I think the meetings are going to go late into the night. I would have thought that uh, Congressman Byron Donalds uh, would be a natural. Uh, his name was put briefly in nomination in the last go-round for Speaker. Uh, I think he's a very good man. On the other hand, he may have uh, he may have uh, jinxed himself uh, by siding uh, with McCarthy on the fiscal questions uh, and on the question of just a continuing resolution. A continuing resolution uh, is a massive spending bill in which nobody has time or the inclination to look at the various parts of it, uh, in which we would have, for example, continue to fund the Justice Department uh, assault on Donald Trump, continue to ship uh, millions of dollars more to Ukraine, uh, but fail to vote for the necessary money to seal our southern border. So um, uh, he would be my sentimental favorite, Byron Donalds of Florida, very good man. Uh, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be very difficult to come up with one man or woman that everyone uh, in the caucus uh, can vote for comfortably. Uh, you said I could ask you uh, anything on this. I'm going to ask you two more quick questions before we get sure. into the thing about Kennedy. Um, one is on the Patriot channels, various Patriot channels, people are beginning to report Again, this is not substantiated because the mainstream media isn't going to publish it anyway, probably. But they're beginning to report that Ukrainians are taking equipment over the border and surrendering to Russia and that, that this thing's about over. What have you heard or what, what are your thoughts on? Is that going on? Is it over over there? Uh, I was with um, our good mutual friend, General Michael Flynn, this weekend. Uh, my wife and I visited the Flynn's in Venice, uh, Florida. We went to a phenomenal event. Patriot event uh, for his uh, newly formed pack, which is called Flynn Pack. Wow. Um, uh, Venice, Florida is not an urban area, but there were, and I'm not exaggeration, there were over 700 Patriots there. It was an exuberant crowd. Wow. Uh, and we had a great time. Uh, but uh, he tells me, uh, and military experts that he knows and is in touch with tell me that the war propaganda in this country that would have you believe uh, that the Ukrainians are kicking the daylights out of the Russians uh, is just wrong. The Ukrainian offensive has failed. The Ukrainians are swiftly running out of ammunition. Uh, this whole idea uh, that the Ukrainians are winning militarily, I think, is false. 
I can't address the specific question, uh, but the strategic repositioning of Poland just in the last couple of days, very, very significant. Well, all right, last question before this other thing. Now, um, I don't even know if you have a thought or opinions or if you've even heard it, but swirling around the internet, now this is going to be viewed on the 4th. So many people are out there and they're afraid of these rumors about what's going to happen on the 4th and supposedly cell towers are going to uh, hit some frequency and people that had the vax are going to be hurt. What, what do you have to say, if anything, about that? Uh, I'm not a scientist, uh, nor am I a medical doctor. Uh, I do know this government uh, is capable of anything. Uh, if you had told either one of us two years ago that the government would try to force us to take a vaccination that had mm. never been subjected to, uh, to clinical trials and the manufacturers of which had no li legal liability, we both would have said, that's crazy. That can't possibly happen. Uh, but it did. So I guess out of abundance of caution, I'm going to have all of my electronic devices turned off. Um, I don't know any more or any less than anyone else. Uh, okay. Other than say, I don't trust uh, our current government and therefore anything, anything is possible. Okay. I hope the reports are incorrect, uh, but uh, I, I really don't know the answer. Well, and I've heard that people, uh, you may have heard this. I just realized this today. I hadn't hadn't come across my knowledge base that people said, well, you don't have a safe place to put your, your cell phones. Uh, and they say your microwave is actually a, a, effectively a Faraday case, which means it's shelter signals going in or out. So if you want to put your cell phone in there for a few hours, that would just pretty much shelter it. So have you heard the same thing? I have. And I guess my question is, what could it hurt? Just don't, yeah. just don't push the start button and you'll be all set. There you go. Yeah, better safe than sorry, I guess. So, all right, well, we're going to talk about Kennedy. Now, I was I mentioned on the show earlier today, I remember where I was. We were on a camping trip, and I remember hearing about it. And next thing, I, my next memory is we're in the living room. We lived in Lompoc, California at the time. And my father, we were watching normal black and white TV that everybody had mostly in those days. And he was explaining this brand new technology. We were watching the funeral. And he was explaining that, as shocking as it was, this uh, hearse that was rolling down the street on the funeral services was had only happened three seconds before we were seeing it based on this new satellite technology. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I guess it was pretty darn new. I was eight years old. And, and so anyway, I, I very much remember the technology of that day. But... Um, have you always been, uh, before you jump into it, have you always been suspicion that something was rotten in Denmark, to use an expression? Uh, not initially. Of course, I was a small school boy uh, in 1963 uh, because my parents were Catholics, but also Republicans. Uh, there was a certain divided loyalty there. Uh, <laughs> I remember being very saddened, particularly when I saw the New York Daily News picture of little John John Kennedy uh, yeah. saluting his father's uh, casket as it went by in the caisson. Uh, it was not really uh, until uh, many years later when I went to work for then former uh, President Richard Nixon. I had worked for him during his presidency, but during those period, I was extraordinarily junior and my actual contact him was relatively limited. In his post-presidential years, uh, I worked very extensively with him directly, uh, working on his schedule, 
uh, sending and receiving messages, uh, collecting political intelligence. He had a voracious appetite for political gossip as well as mm. political information. Uh, and he was he was very, very forward looking. Uh, it was very hard uh, to get President Nixon to be uh, introspective or retrospective. Uh, and of course, he had known de gaulle he had known churchill he'd known adenhower he'd obviously served for eight years under dwight eisenhower uh he'd been a good friend of john f kennedy uh he had uh, brawled with joe mccarthy i was uh, as a political junkie i was anxious to ask him about all these things but he was pretty taciturn that is until he had a couple cocktails uh, <laughs> well, he was a very very proud of his martini making skills. Uh, he also, by the way, did not hold his liquor very well, meaning uh, he got loose tongued after a drink and a half. I never saw him inebriated, I wanna make that clear, but he did become more loquacious, uh, more talkative. Uh, and it was one day uh, in, uh, in Saddle River, New Jersey, in his home there, where I had been invited uh, for dinner. Uh, and he asked me whether before dinner, I wanted what he called a silver bullet. That was what he called a martini. Uh, and he was very, very particular about his recipe. He said, you take a jar of olives, you drain the juice, you fill it with water, you put the cap back on, you shake it vigorously, you drain the water. Now you fill the bottle uh, with uh, dry vermouth and you put it in the refrigerator to chill. In the meantime, you have chilled two martini glasses, splash them with the water, put them in the freezer. Now you take the uh, the cocktail shaker, uh, you fill it with a combination of cubed ice and chipped ice, uh, or in uh, your choice of uh, vodka or gin. The gin tourists at this point are saying, no, no, you have to stir gin. Uh, I don't drink gin, so we'll put that aside for a moment. <laughs> uh, and then you had to shake very, very vigorously. I mean, very vigorously. Nixon would say, look, if you if you haven't uh, shared, if you haven't uh, sh uh, shaken this enough so that the you're almost burning your hands on the cold outside the martini shaker, and uh, if when you pour it, there are not tiny shards of ice on the surface, then you haven't done it right. Uh, and then, of course, once you poured the martini into your chilled glass, you took the olive from the refrigerator, you dropped one or two uh, uh, marinated olives uh, from the vermouth, and that was the silver bullet. And I said, well, Mr. President, that's pretty cool. This is pretty good. And he said, yeah, I got the recipe from Winston Churchill. <laughs> wow. Goodness. So it, it was in one of those conversations, Steve, that I, after he'd had a drink and I'd had one with him, uh, I said, uh, Mr. President, let me ask you a question. Uh, who really killed John Kennedy? And he said, as he looked into his glass kind of furtively, he said, uh, well, let me say this. Uh, the Warren Commission was the biggest hoax in American history. Nixon had been in the Navy and he knew how to curse occasionally. Uh, and I said, well, what do you mean, Mr. President? Uh, and then he said, uh, Dallas. And I said, I'm, sir, I'm not sure I understand. And he said, uh, kind of impatiently, oh, let me put it to you this way. Uh, Lyndon Johnson and I both wanted to be president. The difference is he was willing to kill for it, uh, and I wasn't. Whoa. Uh, 
that began my curiosity. Uh, and I began uh, working on my book, uh, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Now, it's very important to say uh, that those who say, no, no, the Central Intelligence Agency uh, murdered John F. Kennedy, or those who say organized crime is responsible for the death of Kennedy, uh, or those who say uh, the Pentagon uh, and, and the Secret Service, uh, the FBI, were responsible for the death of Kennedy, or those who say Big Texas Oil was the responsible for the death of Kennedy, uh, or the international bankers, none of them are wrong. In other words, my book builds on the scholarship of many, many researchers uh, over a long period of time. My argument, uh, which I think is, uh, it's a New York Times bestseller, by the way, uh, is that Lyndon Johnson has a unique relationship with each one of those entities uh, who had a direct interest in the murder uh, of President John F. Kennedy. So for example, when his nephew, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., currently running for president, has given a number of excellent interviews in which he makes a comprehensive case that the Central Intelligence Agency uh, was responsible for his uncle's murder. And he specifically cites uh, a book called uh, JFK, uh, the Unspeakable by a man named Jim Douglas. There's nothing in Douglas's book that is incorrect, but it is myopic. It only views the Kennedy assassination through the lens of the Central Intelligence Agency. Who was the paymaster for the Central Intelligence Agency? Why, that would be Lyndon Johnson. During the time that Johnson uh, was the Senate Majority Leader in the 50s, uh, while it is a tradition that the Senate Majority Leader never serves on a committee, Johnson takes the rare step of appointing himself to the subcommittee of defense appropriations in the Senate, where the CIA's secret black box budget is kept uh, and under Lyndon Johnson steadily increased. Also true of the budget uh, of the FBI, of course, Lyndon Johnson's next door neighbor uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, the man referred to by Lyndon Johnson's daughters as Uncle Edgar um, was J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, so uh, I argue in this book uh, that whether it is um, the, the Central Intelligence Agency, whose motives against Kennedy uh, are, they believe, his mishandling of the Bay of Pigs invasion, uh, which they believe is his mishandling of the, uh, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, or whether it was Big Texas Oil, uh, furious at Kennedy because he wanted to repeal uh, the oil depletion allowance, uh, or whether it was organized crime who had entered into a, uh, a dirty deal with John Kennedy's father, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, to both supply a million dollars in cash uh, and to break arms on election day in 1960. Uh, each one of those entities has a unique relationship with Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson was on the pad for the mob. Carlos Marcello, uh, the uh, head of the mob in Texas uh, and Louisiana, um, was uh, uh, had uh, uh, agreed with the Kennedys that the deportation process that was ongoing uh, uh, under Eisenhower would be halted. Uh, and uh, the mob felt a uh, double crossed. Uh, but the most important thing about this, uh, uh, and I have, can tell you a lot of anecdotal evidence uh, to 
lead to my theory of Johnson. This is kind of a spoof picture. It was used yeah, that's, a, that's Lee Harvey Oswald uh, photo with Johnson's Lee head Johnson's on it. Thanks for listening. The Elijah Streams podcast is made possible by donations like yours. To become a partner, go to ElijahStreams.com slash give. This, yeah. was a, this is a piece we used for promotion of the book. There is uh, the famous Vesuvian uh, 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 temper of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, so uh, I make an argument here using eyewitness evidence, a fingerprint evidence, and deep Texas politics that the man who has the greatest single interest uh, in replacing John Kennedy is Lyndon Johnson. That's because Johnson himself uh, is the target of two corruption investigations, uh, the Billy Sol Estes investigation. Sol Estes was a flamboyant Texas wheeler dealer. Johnson had gotten him multi-million dollar uh, agricultural contracts in which he was kicking back to Johnson. And also the Bobby Baker scandal. Baker was the Senate president, was essentially Johnson's bagman. Robert F. Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy's brother, the U.S. Attorney General, had already begun telling people that LBJ was going to be dropped from the ticket and he was going to prison. Uh, and indeed, uh, scheduled for November 23rd, there was a column uh, already in the can by Drew Pearson, who was the most influential syndicated columnist of his day, uh, in which he accused Johnson of taking a massive bribe uh, in return uh, for the award of a huge defense contract to General Dynamics in Texas. That was the beginning of the end. After John Kennedy's murder, that column was, of course, spiked. So um, uh, it, this book, I think, kind of takes into consideration uh, all of those elements. It's a much broader look uh, at the Kennedy assassination. I'm not a lawyer, uh, but those uh, who read it, I think, will come away saying that I have more uh, than proved my case. Do you think, um, because you haven't said it in this way, because I mean, I can, I, it's very clear that you believe he's like the tip of the spear. Do you believe he was involved to the extent that he would one day finally said, let's go, this is it, and name the date, and was ready on that date, knew where, when and where it was going to happen? Is it, is it, yeah. do you believe to that degree? Without, without any question. First of all, uh, on the day of the inauguration in 1961, a very, very cold day, uh, Theodore Sorensen, the chief speechwriter for John F. Kennedy, the man who actually wrote the book Profiles and Courage, standing next to Bobby Baker, right-hand man and secretary to Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and when Sorensen says to Baker, congratulations, Bobby, Baker says to him with a red face, John F. Kennedy will, lie, will die a violent and premature death, and he storms away. I document in the book that Johnson stole the Secret Service manual uh, at least three years in advance. It was Lyndon Johnson who persuaded Kennedy to come to Texas. It was Lyndon Johnson uh, who insisted on the motorcade route that drove through Dealey Plaza, which is a complete violation of the Secret Service manual. It, it required the car to come to a full stop and take a hard right turn. That's a violation of the manual. Uh, when going on the freeway, it would have been uh, much, much safer. Uh, no, I think this was planned down to the nth degree. 
uh, the the man accused, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, I don't know where to start. First of all, he has no nitrate burns or no, no powder burns on his arms or his chest. Oh, really? The police tests. So he had not shot a gun that day. When he's uh, trotted out in public, which is kind of odd in itself, what does he say? I'm a patsy, he says. I didn't shoot anyone. And of course, minutes later, he himself is dead, uh, having been assassinated by a man named Jack Ruby. Now, who is Jack Ruby? Well, Jack Ruby's real name is Jack Rubenstein. Uh, according to the Warren Commission, he has no known connections to organized crime, which is laughable because he works for Carlos Marcello, the gangster who runs the mob in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, according to uh, Nick Rui, the longtime traveling aide to Richard Nixon, uh, Nixon was watching uh, in real time on television when Ruby murdered Oswald uh, and Nixon jumped up in his seat and said, I know that man. I know that man. Uh, indeed, uh, if you go to the clerk of the house records of Congressman Lyndon Johnson, recognizing that Congressman Richard Nixon had money left over in the House Un-American Activities Committee budget, persuaded uh, Nixon to use that money to hire Jack Rubenstein as a committee informant. Um, this is all heavily documented uh, in my book, but it, it ties Jack Ruby, who silenced Lee Harvey Oswald before he could go to trial, uh, to uh, to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, it is my belief, uh, Steve, that Kennedy was shot from both the front and the back. There are more than one, uh, more than the three shots uh, claimed by the Warren Commission. Uh, in fact, just two weeks ago an 88-year-old retired Secret Service agent named Paul Landis came forward to say that the bullet, the pristine bullet, which had been found in Parkland Hospital on the stretcher of Governor John Connolly, a bullet that the Warren Commission claimed uh, had hit Kennedy uh, from behind at the level of the neck, pierced his throat, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, 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 wounded uh, Connolly. Um, could not possibly have gone that way because that bullet was placed on Kennedy's stretcher, but later appears on Connolly's stretcher. It destroys the so-called single bullet theory. Um, 13 doctors and nurses at Parkland Hospital, some of whom paid a high price for this, all report seeing a blowout wound in the back of Kennedy's head, meaning he'd been hit from the front. By the time his body is taken to Bethesda Medical Center, uh, that wound has disappeared. It's been patched, uh, and a tracheotomy has been uh, has been performed on his throat, so you can no longer see whether the throat wound is an entry wound or an exit wound. Can you um, can you comment for a second? What do you mean? Some of them, the nurses and doctors, paid a high price for. Well, a number of them are threatened. Uh, one of the things people say to me is, "Well, if there was this kind of cover-up, wouldn't a lot of the uh, would a lot of the witnesses died mysteriously uh, or disappeared? The point, of course, is that many, many of them did, and I document uh, this in the book. Roger Craig, who was a Dallas police officer, saw uh, smoke coming from the so-called Grassy Knoll, which is one of the places in which I believe one of the shooters was stationed. Uh, he drives up, uh, sees a man. Uh, he stopped by a Secret Service agent 
or a man he believes was a Secret Service agent who flashes a badge and says this area is off limits. Uh, two days later, Craig opens his front door to be shot in the face and killed. A perfect example. There are many, many other examples of witnesses uh, who were either threatened uh, or, uh, or or were, were killed. Wow. Uh, it is uh, the book is kind of full of them. Uh, so uh, uh, Dr. Conway was the uh, attending physician at Parkland. He's written an excellent book, uh, which once again complements mine. So those people out there who say, oh, no, Stone is wrong. The CIA did it. They haven't read my book. Or those who say, uh, no, organized crime did it. They also haven't read my book. Um, I think uh, that I make a pretty good case. Here's the most important part which is in the uh, sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building uh, on the uh, on the so-called cardboard boxes that comprise the crow's nest, as they call it, are the fingerprints uh, of a man named Malcolm Mac Wallace. Really? We know these are his fingerprints because he was convicted of first-degree murder in Texas in 1951, and his fingerprints are on file with the Texas Rangers. Uh, he killed uh, the a lover of uh, Senator Lyndon Johnson in an ugly triangle in which this man was trying to blackmail Senator Johnson regarding voter fraud and other corruption issues. Uh, uh, Wallace uh, uh, goes to work at the agriculture department in a patronage job arranged for by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he has a much higher rating as a marksman uh, in the U.S. Marine Corps than Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, and a man named James Carr uh, actually sees, uh, sees uh, uh, Wallace uh, leaving the first floor of the Texas School Book Depository minutes after the shooting, jump into a Nash Rambler, been driven away. There are six witnesses, and I have all of their names and it's fully documented, who see a man who meets the physical description of Malcolm Wallace in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository building. Wallace is middle age. Uh, he is uh, he is sort of squat and fat. He's an excellent shot shot, but he is not the young slender man uh, described as Lee Harvey Oswald. In fact, Oswald um, is on, in the second floor cafeteria at the time of the Kennedy shooting. Really? It is it is impossible for Oswald to get off three shots in record speed, hide the rifle, uh, and run down four flights of stairs between the sixth floor and the second floor, here's the key, without making any noise. It is an old rickety wooden staircase. A woman named Victoria Carr is on the staircase between six and two, and she neither sees nor hears Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, a New York, uh, pardon me, a Dallas police officer sees Oswald calmly eating his lunch minutes after John F. Kennedy has been killed. Uh, there are a lot of other anomalies here. Uh, among them, uh, Malcolm Kilduff, spokesman for President John F. Kennedy, uh, the man you can see on YouTube announcing Kennedy's death, uh, who had traveled to Dallas with President Kennedy, uh, is on an elevator with Lyndon Johnson, who has just become President of the United States. And he says, Mr. President, this is so horrible. Who could do such a horrible thing? And Johnson says, it was a communist, son. And Kildoff says, a communist, sir? What kind of communist? And Johnson says, it was a Russian communist, son. 
The problem with that is that Lee Harvey Oswald has not yet been apprehended at the time that Johnson. Oh, makes wow. It. He was he was already pre set up, but he hadn't been arrested yet. Wow. Well, and then I think every American has seen the famous horrific picture of Lyndon Johnson being sworn in on Air Force One. Yeah, I want to uh, hear that because there's something weird about that. Talk about that. Well, there's a couple things. First of all, it's completely unnecessary. There is no swearing in ceremony. The vice president of the United States immediately automatically becomes president upon the death of the president. So the purpose of that ceremony was to twist the knife in Robert Kennedy, uh, who Johnson hated. Johnson actually called Attorney General Robert Kennedy to ask him to get the oath uh, when Robert Kennedy knew the oath was unnecessary. Uh, a dazed Jacqueline Kennedy, still splattered with her husband's blood, uh, is uh, made to stand next to Johnson to secure uh, her imprimatur uh, on this uh, swearing in. And of course, uh, Johnson uh, winks slyly at one of his segregationist congressman cronies from Texas. All of this is caught on video. Really? Film. really? Uh, if you look carefully, Lady Bird Johnson has a broad grin on her face. So uh, that whole swearing in is completely unnecessary. It was staged for political uh, and other reasons. Well, that's that's a wicked behavior right there. I mean, that that's kind of a dead giveaway. I was going to ask you about that. By the way, this is sort of neither here nor there, but 32 years ago, 33 years ago, last time I saw my father alive, we were sitting on the grassy knoll in Dallas, Texas, below the school book depository building where we had just taken a tour and he was sitting there with this sort of depressing look on his face, pondering the events of that day. That was a weird coincidence, but it's always been a big event in our family to, to look back on. So I'm, I'm especially uh, amazed by this. The swearing in, um, that's just, like you said, I, I'm trying to, I'm looking for words, Roger, because it's sticking a knife in. I can't even believe that why they would have had to have uh, Mrs. Kennedy, in her grief, stand there and be a witness. You know, I never questioned it until today. And all of a sudden I'm going, yeah, why did they make her stand there? Well, if you, as I document uh, in the book, uh, Johnson's greatest fear was that Robert Kennedy would see through this. You see, uh, Lyndon Johnson blackmailed his way on the ticket. In 1960, John F. Kennedy had already chosen Stuart Symington, the senator from Missouri, uh, when uh, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, thoughtfully supplied Lyndon Johnson and House Speaker Sam Rayburn of Texas uh, with some eight by 10 photographs of, of uh, John Kennedy uh, in bed with a woman named Inga, who was an East German spy. Uh, Kennedy uh, receives Johnson and Rayburn uh, in his hotel suite. They basically tell him uh, that they're going to turn this information over to Vice President Richard Nixon, uh, that uh, Kennedy needs Johnson to to win, i.e. steal Texas, uh, and uh, he has this blackmail material. So Kennedy reverses himself and takes Johnson on the ticket. Uh, this uh, begins the feud between uh, Robert Kennedy uh, and Lyndon Johnson, although it was probably begun earlier than that because uh, Robert Kennedy believes that it was Lyndon Johnson who engineered the burglary of uh, John Kennedy's doctor's office in New York City. And of course, Governor John Connolly uh, and a woman named uh, India uh, uh, Andrews 
the National Committee woman from Texas, have a press conference in Los Angeles in which they basically announced that John F. Kennedy has Addison's disease and he will not live to fulfill an entire term. And they have his doctor's records. So Robert Kennedy always blamed LBJ for that. Uh, Robert Dalek, who is a historian, blames Richard Nixon for that. There's no evidence that Nixon had anything was that are you saying it was it was true that he wouldn't live past the term or they just made the claim that he wouldn't? Uh, he very definitely we know from his autopsy that he very definitely did have Addison's disease. Uh, I think it was under control with medication uh, just to show you how politics were. When this hit the fan, uh, they got a letter from President Kennedy, then Senator Kennedy's doctor, flatly denying that he had Addison's disease. That was a lie. Uh, he did have insufficient adrenal gland uh, 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 competency. Uh, whether he would have lived or not uh, is not something I can comment in. He was, generally speaking, uh, in very poor health. Mm. One of the uh, the most shocking parts of this story uh, is, uh, uh, is a side story in which there's enormous uh, evidence that President Kennedy was addicted to a very early form of methamphetamine oh, wow. being treated uh, by a very celebrated doctor uh, named uh, named um, uh, Max. Uh, I'll come up with it one second. They called him uh, Doctor Feelgood, uh, but he was a, a doctor to the stars. Uh, he was attending Maria Calais, uh, Aristotle, Onassis, uh, Frank Sinatra, Joe DiMaggio, Pablo. Casals, uh, Leonard Bernstein, uh, and uh, this doctor was very clearly treating John F. Kennedy, who was uh, in chronic pain. There's a great book on this called uh, Dr. Feelgood. It's also included extensively in my book. Uh, this helped Kennedy with his pain. Uh, he was, after all, a genuine World War II hero. Yeah. Uh, but I also believe that Kennedy's drug addiction was used to rationalize his uh, murder uh, by the by the intelligence agencies who feared that he would give away the store uh, to uh, to uh, Castro uh, or pardon me to Khrushchev uh, at the Vienna summit. So um, it is uh, uh, it is one of the more interesting side stories here that is pretty fully documented in my book. Yeah, I want to ask you about the pristine bullet. A couple of questions on that. Uh, the first one, I'll just ask these together. Uh, when you say pristine, do you mean as if it hadn't gone through flesh or pristine and that it just didn't hit bone? And the other question is, some someone, and I don't remember who it was, I saw a headline, claimed well, just within the last couple of weeks that he had placed that bullet. Had you seen that? Uh, had you heard about that? Uh, the doctor's name was Dr. Max Jacobson. Pardon me for my uh, memory fall. Uh, Dr. Yes. Feelgood, terrific book on this. Um, when I say pristine, the ballistic efforts uh, experts said that it had not gone through any flesh, uh, that it was undamaged in every way. Wow. The Secret Service agent said that he found it lodged in the back of the seat uh, and then he placed it on the stretcher. Uh, that means there are too many bullets, not enough bullets uh, to explain. Now, I interviewed a man named James Tagg, uh, who is since deceased since I interviewed him for the book. Tagg was a young uh, automobile salesman. Uh, he was a supporter of President John F. Kennedy's. He went to Dealey Plaza to get a glimpse of the presidential motorcade. 
Uh, and while he was standing there, uh, a bullet hit the curb next to where he was standing. Uh, a fleck of cement bounced up, grazed his cheek, and he was actually bleeding. This was seen by a Dallas County Sheriff's deputy who insisted that he go immediately to the Dallas police uh, and report the incident. Uh, he did. Uh, it meant that there was unaccounted for bullet. That's a fourth bullet. Help Elijah Streams continue to reach people around the world. All donations go toward making Elijah Streams and the Elijah Streams podcast possible. Visit ElijahStreams.com slash give and become a partner today. Doesn't count it in the three bullets that the Warren Commission speaks of. He then went home expecting to hear from the FBI or the Dallas police, and he heard nothing whatsoever. Uh, after that, uh, he was in a bar telling the story. He was overheard by an AP reporter, James McLear, later of the McNeil Lair Report. Oh, that uh, became a, a front page AP story around the country. Now, uh, Arlen Specter, chief investigator for the Warren Commission, uh, and the Warren Commission have an extra bullet they cannot explain. Uh, that is why they have to claim that one billet, bullet wounded both Kennedy uh, and Connolly. Uh, Connolly, in fact, never had the bully that hit him removed. It remained lodged in his wrist until the time of his death. So it is most definitely not the bullet found on his stretcher, although that is what the Warren Commission would have us believe. How many uh, then did you conclude, or do you have an opinion of uh, there's there's four there's four bullets then that have showed up? Uh, how how many gunmen do you believe were involved in that? Uh, I think that there are there is a one government who I do think is Malcolm Wallace from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building. We see uh, his fingerprints there. There are six eyewitnesses, three of them across the street in the jail, two of them on the ground. Uh, and then that man, James Carr, would make seventh, all of whom describe uh, to a T, including uh, his spectacles, how he is dressed. Uh, I think that there is uh, a shooter on the so-called Grassy Knoll. I think that shooter is a man named Nicoletti, uh, who is a, an imported Corsican uh, sharpshooter uh, assassin brought in by the mob. Uh, Johnny Roselli, uh, a gangster, uh, claims that he was a shooter from the sewer grate. I think there was also a shooter in the Dal Tets building. Uh, Kennedy was very definitely shot from the front and the back. Uh, the Warren Commission uh, theory has now been thoroughly debunked. Uh, a nurse came forward, by the way, from Parkland Hospital, who confirms having seen the bullet that Paul Landis placed on the stretcher. Now, in addition to that, 1978, the House uh, Select Committee on Assassinations, which was really formed because the American people were unsatisfied with the answers, conducted a full investigation, uh, but it was one in which the Central Intelligence Agency flatly refused to cooperate in any way. They would provide no documents and no witnesses. Uh, that committee concluded, uh, in contrary to the Warren Commission report, that there was a conspiracy uh, and that organized crime was involved in the conspiracy, uh, but they left their findings at that without ever naming uh, who the perps were. So uh, over a long period of time, uh, public polls show that even with the three major networks and, and CNN constantly pushing the false narrative of Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone nut, 
a communist uh, acting alone. The American people do not believe it. They believe that there was a conspiracy uh, to kill President John F. Kennedy, and indeed there was. My only argument is cui bono, who benefits? Who was the man who had a unique relationship with everyone involved uh, in this moving conspiracy? Uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, the FBI. By the way, uh, J. Edgar Hoover would have been mandatorily retired in 1964, uh, and he had no interest in going. There's his motive. Uh, the Secret Service Director, John Rowley, the first man who bounds up the steps at Andrews Air Force Base to greet the new president, he got his first job in Washington from who? Why, Congressman Lyndon Johnson. So um, I, I make a pretty good case for a non-lawyer. Uh, it's very important um, to say that if you choose to buy this book, I urge you to go to themanwhokilledkennedy.com. And the reason I say that is, first of all, you get a signed copy. But secondarily, the paperback copy is much superior than the original hard copy. Okay. I added three additional chapters of all new material uh, to the to the paperback edition. One last this, que question. This on that. Oh, that's the paper one right there. Um, so when President Trump was in his first term, he apparently released some Kennedy, if I'm remembering my facts right. But he didn't release it all since then, while he's not acting president, or they got the fraudster there sitting behind the desk or whatever, he has, Trump has said, you know, when I come back, I'm going to release the rest of it. Um, now, I'm sure this is speculation only, but with as much knowledge as you have, can you guess the type of information that's in that final Well, here's the sequence of events. Uh, the Congress uh, set a law in 1977, uh, which would require the release of all this material in 2017, unless the president of the United States affirmatively made a decision to hold back some of it or all of it. Uh, when I first brought this question up with uh, President uh, Trump uh, in 2017, early 2017, he was unaware that he had this responsibility because no one had brought it to his attention. Uh, when he looked into it, um, he realized that he had this massive responsibility. I think his initial instinct was to release all of it. Uh, he had told me subsequently that Central Intelligence Agency Director Mike Pompeo talked him out of that, convinced him that releasing all of the material uh, would, uh, would expose our methods and sources. Well, the sources question is an absurdity. It was 60 years ago. There is nobody still alive who was involved in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Uh, it is true, by the way, that four presidents uh, were there uh, on Dilly Plaza that day. I'll count them. Of really? course, John Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Richard Nixon, who just happens to fly in that day to speak to a, a Pepsi-Cola bottlers convention, uh, and uh, future president George W. Bush, who for some odd reason uh, says that for 30 years he can't remember where he was the day that Kennedy was killed. Well, everyone speaking. remembers where they were. Exactly. exactly. Uh, uh, Bush's movements that day are very strange. He's preparing to run for the U.S. Senate in Texas in 1964, a race that he would lose. Uh, he, within minutes of Kennedy being shot, he calls the FBI field office in Houston to point out that he's in Tyler, Texas, which is about an hour outside of Dallas, uh, giving a speech. 
it's very clear that he's trying to establish an alibi. Yeah. By the way, did I mention that I'm in Tyler, Texas? Hey. Uh, uh, and uh, is is not until 30 years later um, that he finally admits to being in Texas on the day of the murder. Uh, it is uh, uh, it is also uh, interesting uh, that the uh, that the uh, president Trump ultimately uh, is convinced not to release this material. Fast forward to Biden. Now the decision uh, goes to him. He releases about 10 percent more of the material, but even he holds uh, the balance back. When I asked the president more recently whether he regretted his decision, he said, well, now that I know about the deep state that I do know uh, and I know about the FBI and CIA involvement in the Russian collusion hoax. Yes, in retrospect, I believe all of this material should be released. When I said to him, what is it that's there? He said, and I quote, it's so horrible, I can't tell you, but someday you will know. To me, I take that to mean it is the final confirmation that John F. Kennedy was murdered, not by a foreign conspiracy, as Lyndon Johnson kept implying. He told Earl Warren that Warren had to head the commission despite his reservations. Uh, he implied that the Russians and the Cubans were involved in Kennedy's murder. There's no evidence to that effect whatsoever. But he told uh, Chief Justice Warren that if the people knew the truth, it would cause World War III. Well, that was uh, another manipulative lie. My book is a profile of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he was a drunk. He was a pill popper, a drug addict. He was a chronic womanizer. Uh, he was a, a, an outrageous liar. He was epically uh, corrupt. He was a sadist. This is a man who very famously conducted White House uh, staff meetings while sitting on the toilet defecating. Uh, he did this not just because he was crude and from West Texas. He did this to humiliate the people who worked for him, who he had inherited uh, from John F. Kennedy, all of these young Ivy League staffers. Um, he was an epically corrupt individual, really, uh, in the words of his own top aides, a functioning lunatic. Good grief. Yeah, and I, I might have told you this before, but I, the guy that was a chief communications officer from Johnson on the, all the way through uh, Bush Sr., he had long since retired. His name was Van, and he would go into these Kiwanis clubs and, and talk about all the different presidents on Air Force One, sort of spill the beans, but he said the the most corrupt one when he did these, because I heard him say it at the uh, at a ham radio convention. I sat with him at the table and he told us this too, but he said when Johnson um, had finished being the president and he took rode the Air Force One back home to Austin, he gutted the inside of the plane, seats, plates, glasses, everything. He said he completely gutted Air Force One of everything valuable. And uh, based on his credibility and everything else, he'd said, I had no reason to doubt that story. So, um, and I had heard another one from another story from someone that used to be in the government who told me that Jonathan was known for this kind of activity where he'd sit down and uh, go come into the, uh, an office somewhere. This is when he's running for president or whatever and say, you know, I've got about 10,000 reasons I want to see you here today. And that meant I want $10,000 in a bag by the time we're done. So 
Uh, I, again, I can't prove that, but I, based on his reputation, it's believable. There's a number of stories um, in the book uh, that are so obscene and so vile, but pretty thoroughly documented uh, that I can't get into them on a family show. Yeah. But this guy was a pervert on top of it all. Uh, so it's a personal profile of our most unbalanced and I think our, our single most corrupt uh, president. You can get the paperback version by going to uh, the man who killed Kennedy.com. Be my privilege to sign it for you. It's interesting, Steve, when I first wrote this book, I went to six different publishers and they all told me the book had no commercial appeal. No one would ever buy it. It would be unsuccessful. Uh, but with a little bit of luck, uh, this book will put my uh, one and only great grandson through college. Wow. So, uh, wow. It's remained a, 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 an evergreen seller. I'm not, I don't mean to tell you that it has raised millions of dollars, but even with very little promotion on my part, um, for example, I, when I met Mel Gibson uh, in Las Vegas at the UFC fight, he recognized me. He was complimentary. Uh, but he said, I, I read your book on the Kennedy assassination. I think it was the best of the Kennedy assassination books that I've read. When I met Oliver Stone, who is uh, far to the left of you or I, uh, but a very accomplished documentarian, he told me he had read my book and that he wished he had read my book prior to making his really? documentary. Wow. Okay? Because he underestimated the role of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Johnson is the, is the major domo here. He is the drum major. He is running the show. Uh, here's another fact that people don't know. Of the eight Watergate burglars, how coincidental that four of them are on the ground on Dealey Plaza that day. Yeah, I mean, what do we make of that? It's just that they're the same players doing the, the bidding of the extreme left? Or what? what how I think, is they all work, I think they all work for the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, at the time of the Watergate break-in, they're all still reporting to their case officers. Uh, e. Howard Hunt, probably the most famous of the Watergate burglars, uh, veteran CIA operative, uh, confesses on his deathbed to his son, St. John Hunt, very good friend of mine, co-author of my book on the Bush crime family, uh, that uh, he was there in Dallas that day. But he says, look, I was a backbencher working for the company and Lyndon Johnson was running the show. Uh, that's also reflected in my book. Uh, St. John Hunt has a tape recording of it. So um, it, it is, uh, I think we make a very good case using fingerprint evidence, eyewitness evidence, uh, and deep Texas politics to make the case that there were many, many actors and institutions uh, involved uh, in the murder of Kennedy. And Maybe you know, go ahead. You, you, well, you said that there, there, I think you said four presidents were there that day. Who was CIA director at that time? Was it Bush? Uh, uh, no, George Bush was very junior at that juncture. So okay. those who say that he was a major functionary here in the Kennedy assassination, uh, he doesn't become CIA director until 1976. Okay. Uh, this is in 1963. Uh, I do believe his role is raising money for the operation. And there's a lot of evidence that he knew what was going to happen because he goes out of his way to establish uh, an alibi. Uh, but it, as far as uh, his direct involvement, uh, nobody thought that uh, that uh, George Bush was a heavyweight. Uh, the, the CIA director, Alan Dulles, had been fired uh, by John Kennedy 
uh, over the his mishandling of the Bay of Pigs operation, uh, which is why it's outrageous uh, that Lyndon Johnson appoints uh, Alan Dulles, uh, who hated John Kennedy, to the Warren Commission. Uh, and then after Robert Kennedy's death, when Johnson is asked, why did you appoint one of John Kennedy's most virulent enemies to the Warren Commission? Johnson says, oh, well, Bobby Kennedy insisted on it, which I assure you is a lie. Uh, before I let you go, uh, let's change the subject for a minute. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of Robert F. Kennedy, who was also assassinated, you had predicted that he was going to go and uh, move into to being an independent, which I believe he has as much as announced. Uh, what, what do you have to say about that? And what do you think is going to happen with him? And he's going to at least split the ticket if he runs as an independent. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? I would say a couple things. Uh, first of all, um, I liked him as a candidate for the Democratic nomination because I think he was raising important questions within that party, questions about health freedom, uh, questions uh, about sealing our southern border, questions about the war in Ukraine. Uh, people need to understand that running for president as an independent is not as simple as just waving a wand and getting on the ballot in 50 states. Uh, the process of getting on the ballot as an independent, uh, there's 50 different state laws and 50 different requirements, wow. uh, and they're extremely difficult, arcane, complicated, expensive, time and manpower uh, intensive, and frankly, it requires enormous planning. Remember that the laws uh, governing how to get on the ballot as an independent are written by Republicans and Democrats working together to make sure that nobody can easily get on the ballot to challenge the two-party system. Okay. Robert Kennedy, uh, can he muster the expertise, uh, the money, uh, the organization particularly to, to get on the ballot in enough states to actually theoretically win 270 electoral votes? It's an open question. It's a real challenge. Is it possible? Anything is possible. Uh, but now, if he gets on the ballot, you now uh, confront a much more difficult question, which is uh, where do his votes come from? Uh, early polling would indicate that he pulls more votes from President Trump than he does from oh, a Democrat. Wow. In this case, okay. say Joe Biden. I've seen people theorize otherwise, but in my business, I don't operate on the basis of hunches or theories or guesses. Uh, I, I look at hard data. The initial polling data, and I stress initial, uh, indicates that his, uh, given his position on war and peace, given his position on the border, uh, that he pulls disproportionately from Trump. Okay. Uh, uh, and, uh, and therefore, I think his candidacy may become problematic. Now, I like him. Uh, I've only met him one time. So all of this stuff on uh, social media that claims I'm a close friend or advisor that I urged him to run, none of those things are true. I met him one time. I admire his forthright position on health freedom. Uh, he's very articulate. He's very smart, but he is very strongly pro-abortion. I'm against abortion. He is a very for, strongly for the whole climate change hoax. Uh, he campaigned very aggressively for Hillary Clinton in 2016 and 2020. So we are not by any means uh, a good fit. Um, I, I wish him well. I think he's very articulate. 
very smart, very energetic. I like that he uses unifying language, trying to bring people together. I like his housing proposal, for example. Uh, and I think he is, uh, he really has a heartfelt sympathy for the, for the middle class, uh, vanishing middle class in this country. But at the end of the day, let's remember the historical tradition. Third party candidates end, start out running strong, but by election day, they lose steam as their supporters begin to realize that they're not likely to win uh, and that those votes uh, could elect inadvertently the candidate you want the least. Mm. So uh, I just wrote a long piece on this, which I'm going to publish tonight on Substack. Uh, we shall see. The answer is we shall see. Yeah. So good. Roger, Roger, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving us a good hour to really go over this. Uh, so I really want to encourage you to get that book. I'm going to get that book and say the well, website one more time. We, we put it up. The man who killed Kennedy. The man who killed Kennedy.com. We set that up so you can get the paperback version. Be my pleasure to sign it for you. It reads like a murder mystery. It's very, very quick moving. Uh, I'm very, very proud of it. Uh, because again, I'm not fighting with others who have a different theory. Uh, I think that my theory of the crime is consistent with those who say the CIA organized crime of the big banks, uh, big Texas oil um, were all involved. It's important as a final point for, for people to remember, John F. Kennedy favored uh, a substantial uh, defense buildup. He favored a silver backed dollar. Uh, he cut taxes. He was a strong strong anti-communist, uh, and he had a deep suspicion of the intelligence agencies. Uh, I, in my older years, I've come to have a greater appreciation for him, but all of those things played some role in getting him killed. Wow. All right. Wow. Well, thanks again, Roger. Uh, those that are uh, uh, wanting to know who's going to be on tomorrow, which for you is Thursday, Robin Bullock will be with us. That is, He's a good friend of both Roger's and mine. And so you never want to miss uh, Robin Bullock when he's on. So. All right. Have a great day, Roger. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you, bye -bye. Steve. And thank you to everyone at Elijah's Dreams. Thank you. See you later. Bye-bye. This has been Elijah's Dreams. Thanks for listening. For more episodes like this, you can listen to the Elijah's Dreams podcast at ElijahStreams.com on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Join us live every weekday at 11 a.m. Pacific time at ElijahStreams.com on Rumble and Facebook. Elijah Streams is part of Elijah List Ministries. Go to ElijahStreams.com slash give to become a partner today.